church, our Lord said, Why are you persecuting me? So Christ is still on the cross. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. You're listening to Behold the Man with your host, Joe McLean. Hola, buenos dias, que tal? Welcome back to Behold the Man. I'm your host, Joe McLean. It's great to be back with you again this week. Well, this week we're going to be talking about the 30-day challenge for marriage, the 30-day challenge for the next 10 years of my married life. Uh, this is a special challenge that I've laid down at catholichack.com, and we're going to get into that next. That intro song is called Your Kingdom is Glorious by Jackie Francois. And you can find more information or a link to her site on my site at catholichack.com. Just look for the show notes to this episode of Behold the Man. It'll be called The 30-Day Challenge. Well, as we do with all of our shows, we begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. All glory and power and honor be to you, Almighty God, forever and ever. We come before you to praise your holy name, to sit at your feet, and to learn your word. And we ask that you send forth your Holy Spirit to enlighten us today. We pray especially for the vocation, the sacrament of matrimony. It is the fundamental uh, part of our society that builds up man and woman. It provides for children and strengthens our society. And so we ask you to uh, give us extra graces that we might keep this a sacred institution that you created. We pray especially for St. Joseph to intercede for us in this effort and to pray for all those who are married. We pray, God of mercy and of the Holy Covenant, you created every human being, male and female, in your image and likeness, so that they may be fruitful and multiply on earth. In the beginning of our Christian era, you asked Joseph, illustrious descendant of David, to take the Blessed Virgin Mary as his wife and to form with her a family. 
for Jesus, your Son, our Redeemer. Through the difficulties and trials you guided St. Joseph, you made him the protector of the Holy Family and allowed the Church to recognize him as an attentive protector for all Christian families. During the stressful time in which we live, we ask you to safeguard marriage according to your will, and we appeal for the intercession and protection of St. Joseph, your obedient servant, so that families of today will be strengthened in love and continue to live securely in the sacramental state of marriage. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Well, that prayer you can find on my website at catholichack.com. Just go to the 30-Day Challenge for Marriage link. It'll be in the upper right-hand corner. Actually, if you're looking at it, upper left-hand corner of the screen. The 30-Day Challenge for Marriage. Now, basically, on the 30th of September this month, uh, I will be celebrating my 10-year anniversary with my wife, Michelle. It's, it's unbelievable that we've made it to 10 years. I mean, the first time I ever laid eyes on my, my wife, Michelle, it was at a pizza joint in Nashua, New Hampshire. I was actually doing a live remote uh, broadcast from this uh, pizzeria, this Bertucci's Pizza Bar and Grill there in Nashua. And uh, she had and I had been sort of talking off and on on the phone. Uh, she had heard me on the radio there and uh, thought I was kind of funny. And uh, so she wanted to come and meet me. Well, the first time I saw her, I knew I wanted to marry her. Now, I was living a very agnostic life at this point. But that very night, I got on my knees and I thanked God. God, if you're up there. You know, you ever heard of that prayer? God, if you're up there. God, if you can hear me, just in case. Thank you. And, and please, Lord, let this be the one. I, I was, lo was love-bitten at first sight. I know that sounds very cliche, but it's true. That very night, I knew that I wanted to marry her. And it would lead me on this wild journey, this wild ride that I couldn't begin to tell you of what life was going to be like. I, I just knew that I loved her. I just knew that I was in love with her. She was gorgeous. And, uh, and I wanted to spend every other day with her. But again, I was no saint, no hero whatsoever. In fact, my lifestyle was quite bad. It got worse in our relationship. You see, I was addicted to pornography, lust, licentious behavior, complete selfishness, and I was thoroughly agnostic. It didn't matter what you believed or professed. I was a relativist through and through. Whatever made you happy, that was, that was my motto. And so when Michelle said, you're going to have to become Catholic if we're ever going to get married, I said, whatever, it's, it's cool. I don't care. I mean, I knew I grew up in a Protestant denomination and that actually thought that the Catholic Church was, quote, the whore of Babylon, unquote, but I didn't care. It didn't matter to me. I just wanted to be with her. And so I went into RCIA. And it was an amazing process. They were very charitable with me during that process, even though of the, given the, the lifestyle and the demented uh, you know, outlook on life that I did possess, they still, with charity and love, led me through the process. I received my sacraments in the Easter Vigil of 1999, and in September of uh, 2000, we were married. Now, the priest, Father Bert, this was a great priest. He prayed for us fervently, especially for my own conversion. And just minutes before I was to receive my bride at the altar, um, 
he asked me to con- go to confession, which caught me off guard. I was completely unprepared for that and embarrassed almost because I didn't know what really to say. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't really ready to uh, confess face to face like that. But it was grace, it was the grace of God that this man was there persistently knowing our situation and trying his best to see us through this, to, to welcome us home to the church, to welcome us to the sacraments, but to ensure that when we got there, that we had a clue as to what we were doing. And although I would argue we didn't, at least not at that point, but God's grace was alive in us and our hearts, and he was leading us along this path. And even though our relationship took a severe downturn after that, he still was in charge of this journey. Two years later, when I was at my lowest point, I had lost my job and my addiction to pornography was really at its worst, and I was totally uh, using and abusing not only myself, but my wife as well. Our marriage came to the point where it was collapsing. My wife had enough. You take your stuff, I'll take mine, we're done. She wrote it out on a little piece of paper. I was absolutely devastated. I got on my knees one spring day in 2002, and I prayed to God. I had the book of Matthew opened up to Matthew chapter 5, and I was reading the Beatitudes, because that's what I could remember from the RCIA class. The, that one uh, night when I had a, sort of an epiphany there, when I realized that everything Jesus was saying there in the Beatitudes was true, and I was everything absolutely opposite of all of that. So I opened it up there. That was my starting place. And I prayed, God, I cannot do it. I give it to you. You have to do it. And in that moment, he gave me another epiphany, a moment of clarity, where I could realize for the first time that I was not born to lust. We weren't lustful creatures. We weren't creatures of love, as I used to rationalize. Oh, this is all natural. It's all good. We were created this way, you know, to make love. No, I had no clue what that word meant. And in that moment, on my knees, I knew it. I could be honest with myself that I didn't have a clue what love meant, but I knew that my lust did not qualify as love. And that I had to take my marriage, not just seriously, but sacredly. That I broke it, and it's up to me to fix it. And God gave me the grace and the willpower to do just that. Marriage, as we said last week, as we talked about this on the show last week, marriage is an act of the will. Following Christ is an act of the will, not of the emotions. Well, you know, I just don't feel like picking up my cross today, Jesus. I just don't feel like denying this world. I just don't feel like denying even myself today, my Lord. So I'm not going to. I just won't go to Mass today because I don't feel like it. Well, you know, I did stay up late last night, you know, having a good time with the with the friends or whatever. So I just don't feel like going to Mass. Well, we don't do things based on emotions in the, in the walk with Christ. We choose to walk with Christ. And so no matter how we feel, we take up our cross and we follow Him. No matter how we feel, we do what is right. And so the same is true in marriage. Marriage is an act of the will, not of an emotion. Marriage is the perfect example of this principle because, you know, how many times have you heard someone else say or even possibly yourself say, quote, 
I'm just not happy anymore with my spouse. Or how about, we no longer, we're no longer in love. How about, um, you know, God wants me to be happy, right? I mean, she's not making me happy anymore, and God wants me to be happy. And, you know, this other lady that I met, you know, she makes me happy. So that must be the relationship I was meant to be in. That's my, quote-unquote, soulmate. And so I should just leave this marriage and go get the other one because that one makes me happy, right? <laughs> I mean, haven't you heard all this? I mean, how about, quote, we just don't see eye to eye anymore. We've gone down our, you know, different paths. We're in separate paths right now. And, and therefore, we should just dissolve this marriage and, and move on. It makes everybody better in the end, right? Wrong. We choose to get married. When we do, we make a covenant relationship, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But this is an act of the will, not of the emotion. We will often be deceived by our emotions. And so to make choices based on those emotions is is just wrong. It's just not going to cut it. It's not going to get us to where we need to be, and that's heaven. The sacrament of marriage is designed to get us to heaven. It's a beautiful foreshadowing of what will happen in all eternity in heaven there with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as a society, you know, we have made it far too easy to make marriage dissoluble. In other words, we've made divorce way too uh, easy to, um, to get, to accomplish to break up a marriage has become nothing more than drive-through, you know, fast food-like style in this world that we live in. You can you can log on and get divorce paperwork done up in just mere minutes. You can go through drive-through divorce court, you know, drive-through divorce proceedings in Vegas, I think. That's how easy this society has made it. And there's no one to blame but me and you. Our rationalistic attitudes towards our faith and towards our culture, have made that too easy to accomplish. We have taken the sacred and we have profaned it. We have brought it down to something that doesn't even look remotely like what God instituted in the, in the beginning. Now, marriage is for the well-being of the individual persons, for the well-being and education of children, for the well-being of society itself. It's a covenant, not a contract. Now, we've talked about this on the show in the past when we dive deep into Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 and looked at Adam and Eve, and we're going to touch on that again today. But a covenant is different from a contract. A contract is the exchange of goods and services for the sake of economy. You know, I give my plumber money, my plumber comes and fixes my, my pipes, that's not the same as a marriage. If your relationship to your spouse looks remotely anything like that, you are not living a sacramental marriage. And you got to get right. A covenant, rather, is the exchange of persons. I give to you myself. I take yourself to me. This is a complete gift, a hundred percent gift. I don't give most of myself to you. I don't give everything but this one little piece of me. No, I keep this one piece for myself. You can't have this piece. Back off. No, a covenant says I give myself completely over to you. 
like our Lord does, when at the sacrifice of Calvary, which is the sacrifice we all attend at Mass, when he holds up, the priest who stands in the place of Christ holds up the bread and says, This is my body, which will be given up for you. This is the covenant exchange of persons. Our Lord is giving himself completely over his body, his blood, his soul, and his divinity. And then we receive him into the one flesh union when we take him on our tongue. This is a true marriage. Man and woman. They were designed and created in God's image and likeness. And this is a foreshadowing, this marriage between man and woman, for this sacrifice that our Lord makes and gives himself to us. Marriage is a foreshadowing to the marriage feast of the Lamb that we will enjoy for all eternity in heaven. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says in paragraph 1660, quote, The marriage covenant by which a man and a woman form with each other an intimate communion of life and love has been founded and endowed with its own special laws by the Creator. By its very nature, it is ordered to the good of the couple, as well as to the generation and education of children. Christ the Lord raised marriage between the baptized to the dignity of a sacrament. Marriage is not, by the way, marriage is not fleeting. When it, you know, when it doesn't work out, when, when, you know, we just don't see eye to eye anymore. You know, that, that wife of mine, she just doesn't make me happy like she used to. So we're no longer in love. I'm just going to toss this marriage away and go get another one as it makes me happy. Okay. That is not what marriage is. Marriage is also not made in the image and likeness of man. No. We don't get to decide how marriage is configured between, you know, one woman and one woman, or one man and one man, or one man and many women, or one woman and many men. Or how about a man and an animal? I mean, mankind today wants the privilege of deciding what marriage is. But let me tell you, it's not made in man's image. No, it's made in God's image. Marriage is not selfish. It is not closed to the gift of life. It does not retain that little piece of itself, the fertility, the openness to creation, and say, no, you cannot have this piece. This piece is mine. Back off. That is not marriage. In the beginning, God made them male and female. He created them. We're told this in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. It says, quote, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Unquote. So God makes man and woman the first married couple. Marriage is made in the image and likeness of God and not of man. So when we want our example, we look towards God, not towards ourselves, not towards man. You know, in the garden, Adam was, Adam was made to name all of the creatures. You know, God sent him out and said, give names to all of these creatures. Now, this is a, uh, like a figure of speech. 
And in a nutshell, it doesn't mean literally Adam had to name all the creatures, but it was more to the point that God wanted Adam to know that amongst all of the creatures, he had no equal. He had no equal amongst all of the creatures. The very next thing God does is he says in Genesis chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, quote, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. God showed Adam that in creation he had no equal. And he says, this is not good that man should be alone. And then he brings forth the woman from his side, not from his foot that he should trample upon her or from his head that he should lift her too high and too lofty and adore her too much, but from his side that she should be by his side from for all time, his equal. Now, somebody famous said that, and I got it off of Scott Hahn, but I think he was quoting it from someone else, and I don't know who that was. So pardon me for that, that little moment of plagiarism. Now, life was good before the fall, because they were, quote, both naked and not ashamed. In the Catechism, in paragraph 1607, it says, quote, As a break with God, the first sin had for its first consequence the rupture of the original communion between man and woman. Their relations were distorted by mutual recriminations, their mutual attraction, their creator's own gift changed into a relationship of, domini- of domination rather, and lust. And the beautiful vocation of man and woman to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth was burdened by the pain of childbirth and the toil of work. This was the result of a fallen human nature, the absence of that grace in their life because they made a choice, save their flesh or save their soul. And when bullied by the great Nahash, they chose to save their flesh and let go their soul. And so in that moment, we see a massive change. You know, in Genesis 2.25, again, they were both naked and unashamed. Yet seven verses later, we are told that they are realized that they were naked and they covered themselves in fig leaves and they hid in a bush because the Lord walked in the garden in the cool of the day. What happened? What changed? Why? Seven verses and all of mankind is completely transformed? Yes. How crazy is that? Well, before the fall, there was no possibility that Adam would abuse his wife through lust, you know, through looking at Eve's body and saying, I want to use her because she brings me pleasure. No, he would have appreciated her in all her glory, in all her beauty, not just her physical beauty, 
but her emotional and spiritual beauty. The fact that she is a daughter of the Most High God, he would not have reduced himself, let alone reduce her, down to the value of pure commodity. That didn't exist, but after the fall, that did exist. There was the potential that Eve could be abused by her own husband, and so she must therefore protect herself from him by covering up her body because she cannot be used by another man, not even her husband. That goes against the very grain of her being, and shame kicks in to remind and alert our conscience that, hey, abuse is potential here. Protect yourself. Cover yourself up. And that's exactly what happened. We see the fruits of this fallen order that it ripples throughout the rest of salvation history. Throughout all of history, even till today, we see the effects of this fall. I mean, look at just the the very next chapter in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 4, Cain the son of Adam and Eve, grows up to murder his own brother Abel. Cain bears a son. He names a city after his son. Basically, he's seeking his own glory, his own name. Look, this is my son. This is my glory. Look what I have done. Instead of seeking the glory and the name and the praise of God, he seeks himself. He doesn't look to God. He looks to man. He looks inward and not upward. This line of Cain gets worse and worse and worse. Through Cain's line, we read of a man named Lamech. Now, Lamech gives us the first recorded instance of polygamy in Scripture. That's Genesis chapter 4, verse 19. It says he takes two wives. Again, an attack against the very created order by God, which we saw from the beginning was between one man and one woman, and they were joined In the one flesh union, they were both naked and unashamed. And this was good to God. But Lamech, he follows in the evil line of his great-great-great-grandfather Cain, marries two wives, and then Lamech begins to brag about how he also murders to his wife. Like Cain, who murdered Abel, Lamech also murders. And then he brags about how he's even bigger and badder than Cain ever was. So it just gets worse and worse. We see how the good line is corrupted by the evil line. The good line is of Seth. Seth, after Cain murders Abel, Seth is born from Adam and Eve. And we are told specifically that Seth was born in the image and likeness of his father, Adam. Language very reminiscent to how Adam was created. This is the good line because under Seth, Seth seeks the name of God. Seth seeks to praise God, and he only marries once. And so Seth has a good line, Cain has an evil line. And through this evil line, the good line is corrupted. We read in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, of how the daughters of men corrupt the, the, the sons of God. The sons of God are the good line, and the daughters of men are the evil line. And it says that, these, that they marry as they chose, meaning they took multiple wives. And so we see that. Again, that's Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. The good line is corrupted by the evil line. Marriage is under attack. And what happens? Immediately after this event, God says in verse 7, quote, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. 
Verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of God. This is when God takes one man, Noah, and one woman, his wife, and their children and their one wives, and puts them in an ark and saves them through the tumult of the great flood. All of the evil ones are wiped away. They're taken away. The ones that are left behind is Adam and his family. They're on the ark. And then when the floodwaters subdue, they subside, what happens? Just like in the original creation narrative in Genesis chapter 1, the waters recede and the earth, the ground comes forth, and man is placed on a mountain. Just like Adam was placed in the garden of of Eden there to, to keep and to till like priestly language to offer sacrifice to God, thereby serving in this garden, so Noah is on a mountain where the waters receded, okay? And he there offers up a sacrifice and reestablishes the covenant of creation with a bow, rainbow in the sky, with God, between one man and one woman and their family with also one wife. He tries, God reestablishes this covenant, this relationship. He, He writes what went wrong. We see that all the way through, Moses allows divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Yet God says in Malachi 2.16, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and covering one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to yourself and do not be faithless. God hates divorce. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9, that divorce was allowed because of the hardness of the hearts of man. But from the beginning, this was not so. For a man shall leave his father and his mother and be cleaved to his wife, and the two shall become one. This is the sacrament of marriage. Let's make the conscious choice to live out our vocation and pray for it daily. Until next time, may God bless you. From the Catholic Underground. Based on digital.